Good morning again. As I was preparing the lesson this week, I was really blessed because uh, although this section of scripture that we're going to be covering today didn't seem like it was noteworthy, um, it really grabbed me. Uh, and, I, and I think you'll all enjoy what God has to say to us through these passages. Uh, my apologies if I get a little bit choked up during this, because it was a personal journey for me. On September, on a September Saturday in 2008, our pastor Rob officiated over our daughter Stephanie and Tyler's the love of her life's wedding. It was a wonderful time on a sunny day at the beach at the south end of the peninsula. They exchanged their vows and promised to love, honor, and cherish each other until death do us part. Five years later, now with three young children, Steph came down with an aggressive case of leukemia. Knowing the likely outcome of the illness, all of us over the next six months, Stephanie, Tyler, my wife and I, independently sought to better understand these questions. What happens to you when you die? What is heaven like? Will there be marriage in heaven? These are questions which most everyone struggles with, some consciously and others subconsciously during our lifetimes. After six months of treatments and struggle, Stephanie went to be with the Lord. She left behind our son-in-law, Tyler, her children, and the rest of us. This week, we are studying a small section of Mark 12 where Jesus gives answers to some of those questions and a glimpse of heaven. We see yet another group of Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, coming to test Jesus, attempting to trap him. Remember, we are in the final week of Jesus' life. Jesus knows this. The events of the plan are unfolding. Things are happening fast now. The conflict must accelerate and lead to the events at the end of the week, where on Friday he is crucified at the direction of these same people. Last week, Eliot led us through the testing of Jesus by the Pharisees with the question of, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The Pharisees were silenced and marveled at his answer. We learned that we render first to God, which belongs to God, which is our obedience and worship, and we delight in that. We pay our taxes, obey our leaders, even if they're wicked and unjust. We use every avenue we can to improve our government and our environment so that we can live a peaceful and holy life. But when the leaders of this world tell us to do something counter to God's clear teaching, we must obey God rather than men. Today again we see Jesus, knowing that his time is near, in the temple, now openly defying the authority of the most powerful of the Jewish leaders. Follow me as I read verses 16, I'm sorry, 18 through 27 
of Mark chapter 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They would be like the angels in heaven, knowing about now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Let's pray and ask God to bless the study of his word today. Lord, we ask that by the study of this passage today that we see what you've placed in it for us to see. That we understand more those things which are of ultimate importance. Those things which we long to know that by understanding we grow in our awe and adoration and love of you and marvel in the place that you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We thank God because our text this morning offers a joy-filled and hope-filled truth. This morning we see that our true resurrection is in Jesus Christ. And a right understanding of God's word will give us a joy, hope-filled view of our coming resurrection in Jesus. Now, there's been a steady stream of religious leaders with a lot of questions for Jesus. Now, where are all these conversations taking place? If you look in your Bibles, you realize that it's all happening in the temple, a place where God's people are gathered for the Passover celebration, where religious leaders are the ones who are teaching and supposedly helping the people understand who God is from the scriptures that were revealed to them and that were available at the time. Unfortunately, the religious leaders were not interested in the truth. They were not in sync with the heart of God. And Jesus, in his grace and truth, is now confronting them with his word and authority. We look at verse 18, where it says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. This is now the third attempt from the religious leaders in the temple to attack Jesus and discredit him. 
we saw the first of the representatives from the Sanhedrin come and attack Jesus on the issue of his authority. And then last week, we saw that unlikely team of Pharisees and Herodians come to try and trap Jesus on the topic of taxes rendered to the Roman government. And now this week, we are introduced to this third and new group called the Sadducees. This is the only passage in the entire Gospel of Mark where we see a direct conversation between the Sadducees and Jesus. Let's learn a little bit about the Sadducees here first. So what do we know about them? Well, we know that they were the wealthy, the worldly, the influential class of Jewish leaders. They were small in number, much smaller than the Pharisees and the other groups, but they were the elite. They were the wealthy aristocrats. They were the ruling class of Jerusalem. And even by secular historians like Josephus, they were noted for their arrogance and their harshness as a group of people. We also know that they could not have been any more different than theologically from the Pharisees. For instance, the Pharisees, in their theology and their teachings, stressed the sovereignty of God in people's lives. The Sadducees believed that the affairs of human beings, the affairs of all history, were determined not by a sovereign God, but by the unfettered free will of human beings. They were Arminians before Arminius existed. The Sadducees wielded the power of the temple as well. They ran the temple. From the high priest on down through the chief priest, they were predominantly Sadducees. Jesus was disrupting their temple operation. And because they make up most of the Sanhedrin, and because of the failure of the Pharisees and Herodians with Jesus before them, it's now their turn to come to Jesus and try and discredit him. We also know that the Pharisees believed in angels and demons and the miraculous, and the Sadducees rejected all of these. And the last point of difference is especially important for our passage this morning, and it has to do with the topic of the resurrection. And that has to do with each group's view of Scripture. You see, the Pharisees believed that Scriptures contained in the Torah which is those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, plus the prophets and the writings that would be the books like the wisdom literature and the Proverbs and the poetic books such as the Psalms. The Pharisees believed that all of these were part of God's word and part of the scriptures. The Sadducees, on the other hand, had a much more restricted view of what was the real legitimate word of God. They only recognized the Torah, the first five books. And the reason for this difference on their view of Scripture is important, and it is that's directly tied to that strong disagreement on the topic of the resurrection. You see, this doctrine of the resurrection states that the souls of men live on after death. And then, when God brings history to a close, he will raise the bodies of all human beings from the grave, reunite them to their souls, with the righteous being welcomed into eternal life, and God sending away the unrighteous into eternal judgment. 
But because the Sadducees could see no teaching of this anywhere in the Torah, they were convinced that there was no resurrection at the end of the age. That there was no life after death. Mark even says here in this verse, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. As we look at the book of Acts later on in the new church, as the local church was being established, as the apostles, Peter and John, were teaching on the topic of the resurrection, the Sadducees were greatly bothered by their teaching because of this very doctrine. We see this in Acts 4. We'll read Acts 4, verses 1 through 2. And they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Even this historian Josephus commented on this. He commented on how the Sadducees' lack of belief in the resurrection affected their living. Josephus said, because they did not believe in life after death, therefore there was no judgment, there were no rewards, there were no penalties. As a result, they lived for the moment, for the here and now. At death, they believed their soul perished along with the body. So you see, in this respect, though they were obviously pious in their Jewish religion, they were no different from the pagan generations of today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for when we die, that's it, nothing else. So that's the Sadducees. Just uh, to kind of give you an introduction of who that group is before we jump in and see how it is they're trying to attack Jesus. We go on to verse 19, where it says, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What they are describing is this custom of what we call the leveret, or brother-in-law marriage, comes from a Latin word. That is, if a man's brother died, he must marry the widow. We see this in Deuteronomy 25. And we'll read Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 9. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears, shall succeed the name of his dead brother, and his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband, husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of, el of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. 
Very interesting. This was an ancient custom first recorded in Genesis 38 that existed before the law was put into place. God gave this as a provision for a family to be raised up in name and property rights for the lineage of a husband who dies with no male heir. This law was exhibited, as you might recall, in the story of Ruth. It's how Boaz took the opportunity to marry Ruth. Let's go on to verse 20 through 23. It continues with the story. It says, Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Hmm. Now they create a hypothetical scenario that is ridiculous. Again, their goal being to discredit Jesus. So in other words, the Sadducees came to Jesus and said, You're a smart teacher. We have a hypothetical question for you. You believe in the law. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no children. So following the law, the second took her and died, but had no children. The third likewise, and all the way up to the seventh brother, leaving no children. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as wife. Notice that it said, in the resurrection. Now keep in mind, in verse 18, Mark has already told us that these Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. But now they're asking a question about the resurrection. So you can see how absurd this is. Verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Wow. Now, the Pharisees believed in the, resur- in the resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the coming Messiah. But these Sadducees did not. Jesus rebukes their unbelief about the scriptures and God's power. It's like Jesus is saying, the problem you're having is because you are ignorant. Jesus said clearly, you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. Pretty severe. A wrong understanding of Scripture always leads to a distorted view of God and the practice of one's life. The Sadducees are wrong. The Sadducees did not know the Scriptures because of unbelief. Unbelief. Now, the word unbelief is not just simply ignorance, but it's a deliberate decision to not know the truth. I heard someone once describe these people as dumb on purpose. Perhaps you have encountered some people like that. You share the gospel with them or some other truth, and they are just repulsed by it. They don't want to even hear it. So the attempt of the Sadducees is to make Jesus look like a fool, but Jesus puts their ignorance on display. 
wrong understanding of God, God's word leads you to a wrong understanding of who God is and what he can do. And it is going to affect how you're living your life today. I just love Jesus' responses here to the religious leaders, his bold and authoritative responses. He's talking here to the group of Jews who count themselves as the upper echelon of Jewish religion and society. He tells them they know nothing about the scriptures and they know nothing about the power of God. These things, scripture and authority, were precisely the Sadducees' stock in trade. They were the two matters in which they majored, they thought, in which they thought they had expertise. But Jesus tells them these are the two things that they obviously know the least about. First, he says, they fail to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Even taking the first five books of the Torah that they recognized, they failed to understand even those scriptures that they had held to. Go on to verse 25. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus answers their question, when the dead rise. I love how Jesus says, when that happens. That is a reality, when the dead rise, to these people who didn't believe that that would happen. You see, the Sadducees have made a critical error here in their imagery problem posed to an imaginary problem posed to Jesus. Now, obviously, their main error is the fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection to begin with. But even in their crazy what-if question, where they are accepting the resurrection as reality for argument's sake, they still make a critical error here. The critical error is the that they envision the resurrection to be simply like a continuation of this earthly life. They fail to understand, while there is some continuity between our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies, and that of the resurrected state, the world of the resurrected life will be wonderfully different from the world in which we now live. And Jesus says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In other words, there will be no need for marriage relationships in heaven. So the whole logic of the Sadducees' imaginary problem is completely gone because marriage is not even going to be a thing in heaven. The resurrected life is not a prolonged earthly life, but is an entirely new dimension altogether. There is just so much that we do not understand about the life to come, about the resurrected state, and about our resurrected bodies. But there are some things that we do know and that we can hang on to from Scripture. First, Corinthians 15, for instance, is teaching us what that resurrected state will look like. Listen to Paul, what he tells us there. First Corinthians 15, we'll be reading verses 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What he's comparing here is our earthly bodies, what is sown, in his language, to what is raised. That's our eternal body. And he says what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown to dishonor. It's raised to glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised to power. And it's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. So he's giving us these comparisons here because there would be differences between our resurrected life and our earthly life now. Then we have passages like the one here today in Mark chapter 12 that teach us that earthly institution of marriage and thus the gift of sexual intimacy within marriage that God has given us as human beings will no longer exist in the eternal state. This idea troubles some of us, doesn't it? Especially believers who take great delight in their spouses. This idea that we would not continue marriage relationships eternally can trouble us, right? I get that. I get that for sure. But we must recognize here that the full joys and awe and wonder that we have in the eternal state will make everything in this earthly life pale in comparison. I don't think Jesus' statement here where he says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage means that we won't recognize each other. That is, when you get to heaven and I'll see my wife and have no clue who she is, I don't think that's what Jesus means at all. I also don't think Jesus means that we'll do away with all sexual differences, like the differences between male and female in heaven, as we all will be asexual or something like that in the eternal state. I think he simply means that we must not think of heaven, we must not think of that eternal state, we must not think of the resurrected life as just simply an extension of the life that we know now. Verse 25 ends with the phrase, they will be like angels in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Angels are glorious. They are eternal. They are heavenly beings. They do not cohabitate. They do not reproduce. They do not die. By the way, it doesn't say we become angels, but we will be like angels in that way which reinforces the point that marriage is only for this life. We will not have earthly marriage in heaven. God's power in transforming the resurrected body made the marriage relationship no longer necessary. In that future state, there will be no marriage. This is an institution that God has given to us for our time on this earth, for the purpose of procreation, for the purpose of joy, and so forth. But that will be no longer needed in heaven. When we are in the fullness of God's presence, we are in the fullness of God's glory and joy for all eternity. Whatever physical and emotional pleasure that we enjoy in this life, including the marriage relationship, will be experienced beyond our imagination in the life to come. I love how one author puts it. When he writes this, 
by the power of the resurrection, marriage, sex, and family relationships will be exceeded by a perfect communion with God and perfect communion with each other. And we don't know everything about that resurrected life. We don't know everything this entails. And when we think about this, we can be tempted, can't we, to have an element of sadness, to have an element of, oh, man, I don't like that. doesn't sound great to me. But we can have the utmost confidence in that eternal state when we are free from sin, when we are free from sadness, when we are free from all that sin that is created here in this life we will find that in God's perfect plan, whatever that looks like, it will be good and it will be perfect. It will fill us with infinite joy, infinite pleasure, like we have never known in this earthly life whatsoever. But the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. No, no. Let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians. We'll go to Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride, and we will all be part of that. Paul links human marriage to the higher reality that it represents. One of the books which helped my family through the time up to Stephanie's passing was called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Here's what he said about heavenly marriage. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost pointing to our relationship with Christ as our bridegroom. Once we reach our destination, the signpost becomes unnecessary. That one marriage, our marriage to Christ, will so completely be so completely satisfying that even the most wonderful earthly marriage couldn't be as fulfilling. So Jesus here, in his answer to the Sadducees, says, listen, your hypothetical absurd scenario here it carries no weight. Whose wife is she going to be? In the new heavens, there is no marriage. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9, and let's look at the marriage that is to come. My prayer is that as we read this, and that is Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7, our hearts will be stirred up for the very joy that awaits you and me who are in Christ. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 7. When I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So to those of you who are married in this room this morning, do you see marriage as an opportunity or means of grace 
to prepare each other for the ultimate wedding in heaven? My prayer is that marriage in this earth will continue as the Lord wills. And every day as husband, I have the responsibility, according to Ephesians chapter 5, to wash my wife with God's word so that I can prepare her to be pure and blameless so that when Christ comes, she will be ready. Husbands, are you in that position today? Wives, are you pointing your husband to the glorious resurrection that awaits him? Yes, you will not be married when you get to heaven because you will be married to Christ. And you will remember perhaps all the good memories that you've had together. But when I look at Debbie in heaven, we are going to say to each other that we thank God for what he has done in our marriage. But here in heaven, it's time to walk his aisle. It's time to meet Jesus. And I'm going to point her to Christ. Perhaps that's what she's going to do to me. Look, Christ, Paul. Jesus is a greater. Jesus is greater than any of us. Our Lord and Savior is so magnificent that the earthly marriages would not matter anymore. Husband and wives of Sovereign Grace Bible Church, I pray that you are not disappointed, but I pray that you are delighted in this truth. And finally, as he answers the Sadducees, he teaches us here about the God of the living. He could have just ended there in verse 25. He would have answered their question. And he would have sent them away in silence. But he goes on in verse 26 and 27 with an opportunity to show them why they're wrong about the doctrine of the resurrection. 26 and 27, he says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush? How God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. They were ignorant of the scripture, and they were ignorant of God's power. They were supposed to be the experts. It's like he's saying, oh, and uh, by the way, um, you're stuck on Moses. Let me take you to Moses. And then he says, now about the dead, have you not read the book of Moses? And that's a serious indictment of those who deem themselves to be the experts on the writings of Moses. And that passage he took them to was Exodus 3, 6, where it says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The impact of this is, I am, and they are. Did you get that? God speaks of his covenant relationship with the patriarchs who aren't around at that point. They've died. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, and they are, not I was, and they were. It doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, and I'm, I was the God of Isaac. It says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says it in the present tense, though they were all dead by the time God said that in Exodus 3. 
In Genesis 26:24 and Genesis 28:13, he further makes the point, God calls himself the God of Abraham after Abraham has died. Exodus 3 again. Three times in Exodus 3, and another time in Exodus 4. God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all three have died. And then he seals it by saying at the end of verse 27, Jesus speaking of God, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Jesus connects wonderfully the resurrection to show God's steadfast love through his covenant. So who are the fools? The Sadducees are the fools. Our God is not the God of, the, of dead men. He is the God of the living. There in the most obvious place in the writings of Moses was the evidence of the afterlife. All those years and years of poking around in the writings of Moses to prove there was no resurrection and there, right under their noses, in that magnificent place in Exodus 3, verse 6, God identifies himself as the God of those who are living. He shocked them. He proved the resurrection from their Pentateuch. Jesus was no fool, but they were. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God. The author of Hebrews unpacks for us the very heart of God and his servant Abraham. As we read in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10 and verse 16. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But as it is, the desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Therefore, listen to me, church. Our future resurrection in Christ is rooted and sealed in God, God's covenant-keeping love. And that's why you're going to make it to the end. It's not because of your own strength. It's not because of your own wisdom. It's because of the covenant that God made even before the foundation of the world. Friends, this is where the resurrection is knitted together. That's why Jesus asked the Sadducees, have you not read the book of Moses? What God has done convincingly and tremendously in the past, he brings to us through Jesus Christ and carries it for us until we meet him face to face. God's unfailing love will usher us into his kingdom. God's covenant-keeping love is going to keep you more pure and blameless. He's the one going to provide you the clothes so that when you face the bridegroom, you will not have shame, you will not have guilt, but only Christ. So think about this. Would it still matter if your spouse is not your spouse 
in heaven if Christ is already there? If our hearts are troubled, it only means that it is rooted in what is temporary, decaying and fleeting. Jesus is elevating the conversation by means of telling them that they are fools to believe that there is no resurrection of the dead, because there is. The covenant that God has laid out in the Old Testament is running throughout the messages of the Gospels. Church, if you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your God is alive. And the good news is, he is going to raise you from the dead. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. Then Jesus says at the end of verse 27, you are badly mistaken. And Jesus has magnificently silenced his critics once again. Let me provide you three simple applications for this passage of Scripture as we end our time together. First, seek to know God's Word. The Sadducees failed to really investigate the book. They looked with their own human eyes but did not actually see what it said. So know God's Word. Ask God. For his help. If you're a new believer, here's my prayer that you'll get a Bible and you'll start reading. Start in the book of John and see the marvelous picture of who Jesus Christ is. If you've been a believer for many years, my prayer is that you will cultivate a discipline of studying God's Word, have a family worship each week. Don't just wait for Sunday. You can have a family worship each day. Seek to know God's word. When we seek the Lord in his providence and in his spirit, he provides illumination and wisdom. There are Bible studies going on almost all the time in this church, so start attending one. Second, set your minds on the glorious resurrection and marriage that we will have in Jesus Christ. That's my goal, friends. If you're married today, let this be your goal, to prepare each other for the coming marriage with Christ. If you're single, and God calls you to be single for life, then praise God. But you also need to train yourself to be prepared so that when Christ comes, you're prepared. So set your minds on the things above so that we may understand that our lives here are temporary. Your jobs are temporary. Even your church is temporary. So what's happening is that when we gather each Sunday, like today, when we gather as a church, we are training each other for the coming wedding. Lastly, while we wait earnestly, pray that God will incline your heart to delight in him along with the hearts together in this church. You know why? It's because when we get to heaven, when the wedding march starts to play, it's not just you, it's the church. The question is, are you preparing together with the church? Are you preparing yourself to be God's bride in this church? It is a communal experience And therefore, we can experience it even here today 
If any of you feel disengaged with the church family here, my prayer is that God would give you the courage to come alongside with other believers and say, I'd like to walk with you. I'd like to prepare myself for the coming wedding that Christ is preparing. This communal experience is meant to be in person. If you are watching this online, it's okay on occasion when you're sick or infirmed, but we need to prepare together for the coming marriage with Christ. If you are not able to come, call us and we'll come to you. There's an old hymn. I don't know if anyone knows it here, maybe some, that speaks of the arrival into heaven. I'd like to read the lyrics to you. It was written in 1857 by a lady called Anne Cousin. It's called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed to. The fair, sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but dayspring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, mercy does expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. There the red rose of Sharon reveals his handsome bloom. He fills the air of heaven, sending forth his fresh perfume. Oh, to behold his beauty, while by his fragrant faith, his fragrance fanned where glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king, there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb, with his fair army, doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. I have no rock beside him in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. It's been almost 15 years since Stephanie and Tyler's wedding on the beach. The kids are no longer little. Tyler has been remarried. And our family is getting ever larger. I've learned a lot since then. I found about a lot more about God's preparations for us in heaven. How there will only be one marriage. We as a church will be married to Christ. 
and I'm excited to see what it's going to be like and to meet Jesus face to face to whom we serve and of course to see my precious Stephanie again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had today to worship and praise you, sing and pray and fellowship. We thank you also for your word, which powerfully opens up truth to us. We thank you that Christ is always on display in the Gospels. His majesty is seen. There is no one like him. No one. The more we look, the deeper we look, the more carefully we consider even the tiniest detail of his life and ministry, the more glorious and wondrous he becomes. And to think that he calls us his own and that he loved us and gave himself for us so that he might take us to heaven forever to be with him. We are unworthy of that. What an honor it is. What an undeserved honor for us. What a joyous anticipation. May our gratitude demonstrate itself in obedience and love to him. We pray in his name.